Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Jude once again. The letter of Jude. We'll continue this morning to look at verse 9. As I said in the previous sermon, maybe the most difficult verse in the book of Jude. At least it has proven so to be for me thus far in my studies. <clears throat> this is our second look at Jude 9. It's actually our third part as we're moving in this uh, series of illustration to accusation. As Jude has moved on from the three illustrations he gave us of the false teachers who had crept into the church and is now pulling back the veil and accusing them to their face for the benefit of those who gather in the church for their protection, for the preservation of truth and apostolic doctrine. If you recall last time I said we were going to look at many doctrines even in this one verse. We looked at tradition and sola scriptura, and the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture last time. And this time we'll be looking at spiritual warfare, the priesthood of every believer, the new covenant as a better covenant, and living in light of the coming judgment that God has promised. The objective in, last, uh, in the last message in Jude was to not only be reminded of the light that we have in Scripture alone, but to be strengthened and comforted by the protection of our king, even in the light of our continual breaking of his law each and every day. But today's objective is to learn from Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, as we battle against the world, our flesh, and the devil. Our general outline for this one verse was three in part. We looked at the first one last time, a greater example and today we'll be looking at the next two parts, a greater wisdom and a greater judgment. With that in mind and with your eyes on Jude, read with me if you're able. In fact, I want to start again in verse 5 just to give us the context as we approach verse 9. Start with me in verse 5. The illustrations that Jude gives. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Then the direct accusation. Yet, in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
Let us go to the Lord once more and ask his help. Father in heaven, we ask for your help now. I ask that you would give me clarity of speech and of mind as I deliver that which you have contained in your word for the good of your people and for your own glory. Lord, guide us all by the Holy Spirit, the anointing that we all have as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It's in his precious name that we ask and pray. And we all say, Amen. I want to start out by giving an illustration of a species of ant in the Amazon. This is an industrious and hard-working species, and they make these giant mounds for their homes. And one day, a giant elephant came trampling by and completely shattered and obliterated this anthill that these industrious and hard-working ants had labored to make. And they gathered and they came up with a plan. We'll just keep on being hardworking. We'll just keep on being industrious. And so they built another mound. And lo and behold, after their labor was done, along comes the same elephant and tramples on through and breaks the ant mound again. They said they will not be fooled again. And so they devised another plan, this time to build the mound but when the elephant comes by, they would hide in the trees. And when the elephant came stomping by, they would all attack the elephant and jump on his back. And so it was that they all waited in the tree after their mound was built. And here comes the elephant trotting along, minding his own business, headed right for the mound. As he approached, the ants yelled, attack! And all jumped off the branches of the trees onto the elephant. The elephant just shook, shook his hide, and all the ants flew off, except for one. And all the ants, bewildered on the ground, laid looking up at that single ant, hanging on to a single hair on that elephant, and shouted, Kill him! What would be your thought about those ants? Foolish? Wishful thinking? Well, in a somewhat comical way, I think this is an illustration about these false teachers who had crept in to the church. They're actually going to be likened to animals in the verses that come next. But here we have Jude, who is evoking a memory to give illustration to these false teachers who had crept in. What were these false teachers doing in verse 8? If you recall, we just read, in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. These false teachers have the boldness and the audacity to revile that which is greater than themselves, much like the ant with the elephant. And then we come to Jude giving us this example in light of that. This is the context for verse 9. These false teachers who reject authority and revile angelic majesties and defile their flesh. And so he gives the example of Michael the archangel disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. 
Now, if you recall, last message we talked just about Michael, the archangel. Again, that is where we talked about tradition, the traditions of men, the traditions of religion. Who is Michael? What are archangels? Who are the archangels? I read for you an apocryphal work called The Assumption of Moses, which actually recounted, supposedly, because we don't have any extant manuscripts that actually have this in it, but pieced together by early church fathers and Jewish tradition, this apocryphal book actually contained a narrative of Michael, the archangel, disputing with the devil about the physical body of Moses being buried. And if you recall, in that apocryphal work, the devil was using the Mosaic law to bring a charge against Moses after death, saying because he killed a man in Egypt, he was not deserving of a noble burial. And it was there that the archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. And we asked the question, is this the text that Jude is using as another illustration as he is moving to the condemnation of these false teachers? Or is there something more? Well, again, I think there is. And this is where I want to move on to from verse 9. After learning about Michael the archangel being one and the same as I believe, with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We now move on to what are the specifics of this confrontation between Michael, the archangel, and the devil. And so read with me the first part following but Michael the archangel in verse 9. When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Again, here we have Michael the archangel, he who is like God, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, disputing with the devil. Now interestingly enough, as I was studying this, I was reminded of Isaiah 14.14, where we have Michael, the name meaning he who is like God, Debating, disputing, arguing with the devil who says in Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. As I wrestled with what Satan was saying in this prideful speech, I was wrestling with what Satan was actually saying. Was Satan saying that he would be subordinate to Yahweh by ascending above the heights of the clouds in Isaiah 14, 14? I don't think that is the case. I think what, Isaiah, what Satan was saying, and what Isaiah records for us, is that he would be equal with the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High. And so here we have Michael one who is like God in a direct confrontation with Satan who says that he will make himself like the Most High. We have a genuine and a counterfeit in dispute face to face. And what are they disputing about? 
Simply put, they are disputing about the body of Moses. That is clear from the text. But what is not clear about the text is the specific situation and historical encounter between Michael and Moses, especially the burial of Moses' body. Again, in the assumption of Moses, we have a specific narrative about the burial of Moses and his physical body. But what do the scriptures have to say? Well, if you're able, turn to Deuteronomy 34, as we look starting in verse 1 in Deuteronomy 34, and we will hear what the scriptures have to say about the burial of Moses. And is it here that Jude is pointing to? Is this the context we are supposed to have in mind? As Jude gives the example of Michael the archangel disputing with the devil and arguing about the body of Moses. Hear what the scriptures say. Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Naboo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, I believe that is the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Period. No dispute with Michael the archangel and the devil over the burial of Moses, over his physical body. Simply put, the Lord himself buries Moses in an undisclosed location so that no one would know where his burial place was. Nothing about an argument. Nothing about Michael and the devil. Is Jude then drawing on this apocryphal work de facto when he gives us this illustration? We know that Jude has used apocryphal works before, talked about the book of Enoch, and he will go on to quote the book of Enoch in the coming verses in our study. Now, although I think it's possible that Jude is citing this apocryphal work of the Assumption of Moses. I don't think it's the whole story. Is there any other way that we can understand what is meant by the body of Moses? That'd be my first question, and it was my first question. And I think the answer to that question is yes. Could it be that we're not talking about the physical body of Moses? Could it be that that's not what this dispute was about at all? Sounds like a tall order, but bear with me. Could it be that the spiritual body of Moses is in mind? You might ask, what do you mean by the spiritual body of Moses? His disembodied spirit? No, that's not what I mean. I mean, could the body of Moses be another way of saying the Mosaic Covenant? 
the Mosaic law? Listen to John Gill on this point. So the body of Moses, or the body of his laws, the system of them, just as we call a system of laws and of divinity, such as one's body of laws and such as one's body of divinity, and this agrees with the language of the Jews. What is John Gill saying? That the Jews spoke in this way. They speak of statutes and service and purifications and the like as the bodies of the law. And so the Mishnic treaties, as those which concern the offerings of the purifications, they are also called the bodies of the traditions. Even the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments itself, is said to be the body of the Shema. So, Clemens of Alexandria says that there are some who consider the body of the scriptures, the words and the names, as if they were the body of Moses. So could it be that the body of Moses, which Michael the archangel is disputing with the devil over, isn't actually the physical body of Moses, but rather the body of his laws, the Mosaic covenant? Could Michael and the devil actually be debating the Mosaic covenant? Should give you pause. Gave me pause. Two considerations. Does the New Testament ever invoke the name of Moses to intend the spiritual body of the Mosaic covenant? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Remember what Jesus said? when he was arguing with the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. I think Jesus is using the word Moses there, the name Moses, to invoke the Mosaic covenant. I don't think he's arguing that Moses himself in heaven is going to stand before the throne of God accusing them but rather the Mosaic covenant, the law. Do we have another example in the Gospels where Jesus debated the spiritual body of Moses with the devil? Can you think of any? I can. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, when Jesus is tested in the wilderness by the devil. Over and over, what do we hear Jesus saying to Satan? It is written. Pray tell, Lord, where is it written? In the scriptures, the body of Moses. But this brings up a question. Why was Jesus, the Son of God, in the wilderness, debating with the devil in the first place? Do you mean to tell me that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the omnipotent creator of heaven and earth, the one who made the devil, also allowed himself to be interrogated by the devil? We have to make proper distinctions. Couldn't Jesus have simply said, Be gone! And the devil would have been forced to flee? Yes, and yes, but he chose not to. Jesus was acting as a mediator, the mediator of the new covenant. He was acting as our representative. We must make proper distinctions 
when we consider the person and the work of Christ, especially as related to in his incarnate ministry. More on this in a few moments. But even though I think this is a rich parallel in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 with our text today, I have found that Jude will give us an even clearer indication of what he wants to draw our attention to concerning this argument between Michael and the devil. And it's not in the New Testament. It is something much older, something that would have been much more ingrained in the minds of his first Jewish hearers. Remember, he's often speaking to a Jewish audience, giving Old Testament references. Remember the three examples that he gave? The illustrations? Here again, I think he's appealing to the Jewish mind who is intimately acquainted with the scriptures. Yes, this example that I think he's going to allude to is something much older in the Old Testament. But there is something peculiar to the pattern of our Lord's choosing, especially as it concerns debating with the devil. And if that's what's taking place, that Jude is discussing a debate between our Lord, known as Michael, the archangel in this passage, with the devil, we are to take notice of the other debates that Jesus has with the devil throughout Scripture, are we not? See if there's a pattern there. Again, what is the context? Let's go back and remember verse 8. These false teachers are reviling angelic majesties. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says glories. They're just reviling glories, those who are greater in authority. Some take it to be the apostles. We learn that in 1 John, that the false teachers who creep into the church you try to usurp apostolic doctrine. They try to pass on their own doctrine as apostolic. Could it be that these are the glories, these are the angelic majesties that these false teachers are reviling? It could be. Could it be supernatural angels? We've already discussed that in Genesis 6 in the preceding context. That could be. Could it be the Lord himself who Jude has already said these false teachers deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ? It could be. What we do know is this, is that these false teachers are reviling those who are in greater authority than themselves, whether in power or authority. The sin of these false teachers increases when viewed in contrast to this spectacle. And that is why it's interesting that the next part of the verse in verse 9 says this, that when Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, what does it say next? Did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. With all this context in mind, it really makes that stand out more. The irreverent railing of these libertines, as one commentator says, stands in striking contrast to the attitude and the actions of Michael the archangel. Even when there was good reason to pronounce a railing judgment against the devil, he, Michael, who is like God, held back. 
These false teachers, who have no good reason to pronounce a railing judgment, blaspheme and rail against those much superior to them. What a contrast. What a contrast between Michael the archangel in this episode with the devil and the false teachers who let their mouths roam free out of pride and arrogance. So what would be the lesson? Well, first, to expose these hypocrites for what they are. But is it possible Jude is subtly hinting that those who may feel the right to rail against these false teachers in the church would choose humility instead of pride? Think about that. If this apostolic doctrine showed up in the congregation and is being read, and Jude is now pulling the curtain back on these false teachers, and the faithful in the church have now been warned that they are here, that which Peter had warned would come is actually here now, what would seemingly be the attitude of those who were in the congregation? Maybe one of fear, one of vigilance for sure, maybe one of pride, maybe one of anger. Maybe you would be tempted to revile them. But Jude is quick to give the example of Michael who didn't even pronounce against the devil a railing judgment. Could there be a lesson there for the body of Christ as it concerns false teachers, as it concerns those who are, have crept into the church today? We never want to be prideful, brothers and sisters. We do want to be vigilant. And we can certainly say it's the Scriptures that you are held accountable to. May the Lord rebuke you. But this brings up an interesting question because Michael, who I am arguing, is the Lord Jesus, did not only or did not give a railing accusation against the devil, but it says this interesting phraseology in our New American Standard Bible, that he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. And this is a difficult phraseology, especially the way that we understand those words in our English parlance. What does it mean to you when you hear the word, you dare not do that? The meaning here, clearly, in the context, is not one of fear, but I would argue one of choice. It's not that Michael, the archangel, feared the devil and dared not in that way to respond a railing judgment against him, but rather he chose not to. Now, is this word used anywhere else in Scripture this way? One commentator says yes, and I am apt to follow his observation. Romans chapter 5, verse 7, you all know this verse well. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now, is the word dare used there in a fearful way? No, I think it's used in the sense meaning choose. In other words, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would choose even to die. Could that be the context with Michael the archangel disputing with the devil? That 
he chose not to pronounce against him a railing judgment? That colors the verse a lot differently if you take it to be that way. Could the idea there be not one of fear, but of choice? So here is the point. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ did not choose to pronounce a railing judgment against him. Again, listen to Gill. And now the argument is from the greater to the lesser, that if Christ, the prince of angels, did not choose to give a railing word to the devil, who is so much inferior to him, and when there was so much reason and occasion for it, then how great is the insolence of these men, these false teachers, that speak, of, that speak evil of civil and ecclesiastical rulers without any just cause at all? Again, when you look at it in this way, this is a quite, quite a, a striking contrast and an illustration. Here's the application, brothers and sisters, that I want you to consider. Because this is a difficult passage. We need to wrestle with the scriptures. But the Lord often chooses to do things differently than we would expect, doesn't he? Does this surprise you? Remember Isaiah 55? verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If that's the case, and it is, shouldn't we expect that the Lord would often do things or say things that would be strange to us? It may seem strange, that the Lord chose to wrestle with Jacob. Does that seem strange to you? It may seem even more strange that the Lord allowed Jacob to wrestle with him all night until daybreak. Read it for yourself, Genesis 32, 24. Is that communicating to us that Jacob was as strong as God and it was a stalemate? It may seem strange that the Lord chose to create the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six days. It may seem strange that the Lord chose to rest on the seventh day. Did it require the Lord to take six days to make heavens and the earth? Could he not do it in the blink of an eye? Did the Lord need to rest on the seventh day because he was tired? Why does the Lord choose to do these seemingly strange things? Well, we could say because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. True. But what's more? I believe he does these often because he's teaching. He's teaching. Why did the Lord take six days to create the heavens and the earth? As a pattern for us. He's teaching us. Why did the Lord rest on the Sabbath day and sanctify it? As a pattern for us pointing to that eschatological rest that we all are running towards. Listen to 1 Peter 1. We know this passage well. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you 
in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. But don't miss this next part. Things into which angels long to look. Does that seem strange to you? That angels are actually learning from what God is doing in redemptive history? Angels are not omnipotent. Those created angels. They do not know all things. God is teaching us, and he's actually teaching them. So even though it may seem strange or even inappropriate that the Son of God would choose not to pronounce a railing judgment against the devil at this time, because he had every right to and all authority to do so as his creator and judge. Remember what Martin Luther said, that the devil is God's devil? Even though the archangel Michael could have rebuked the devil himself, I believe he chose to teach the devil a lesson. Instead, by leveling the covenant name of Yahweh, the Lord rebuked thee. Yahweh rebuked thee. I think we have seen the Lord argue this before. I think Jude gives us a direct citation to steer us there in our thinking, not to the temptation in the wilderness, but to something much older, again, in the Old Covenant. Let's see what Michael says to the devil. Again, look at me, or look uh, at your Bibles with me. The ending of verse 9. But said this, The Lord rebuke you. I believe this is actually the Tetragrammaton as a citation from the Old Testament. Yahweh rebuke you. If you're able... Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. I think Jude, more accurately, more appropriately possibly, is pointing to the Old Testament for those in the church. Remember, Deuteronomy spoke nothing about Michael debating with the devil over the physical body of Moses, which steers us towards the assumption of Moses, this apocryphal work, because it gives that, right? But listen to Zechariah 3 and ask yourself, is this what Jude is pointing to? Is this what we should be looking for? Does Scripture contain the history that we need to rightly interpret the Scriptures? Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Pause. Here we don't have Michael being spoken of, correct? But we have the angel of the Lord. What did we discuss in the previous sermon? That there is a parallel between the angel of the Lord and Michael. I believe they're the same person. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have Joshua the high priest, not Joshua the son of Nun, that is in the apocryphal work of Moses who buried the body, or who was with Moses at his death. But rather Joshua the high priest who was the one who was chiefly in charge of rebuilding the, te the, the temple after the Babylonian captivity. He was the one who the priesthood would be restored in. This is the context. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Jesus, Michael, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we have Satan not accusing Moses, about killing a man in Egypt. 
But we have Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest, who's commissioned to build that temple. And the Lord said to Satan, who, sorry, who said to Satan? The Lord. Who's, who's the Lord in the context here? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says the same thing that Michael says. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Here is the covenant name of Yahweh. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your sin, your iniquity away from you. And will be clothed with festal robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here in such Old Testament fashion, we have this ambiguous back and forth between who's speaking. Is it the angel? Is it Yahweh? And the answer to that question is yes. The angel is Yahweh. We see this over and over in Genesis, and now we're seeing it again in Zechariah. What a picture of unconditional election. What a picture of the gospel. But what I want you to notice here is that the angel of the Lord, who is a Christophany, is saying the same thing that Michael is saying. The Lord rebuke you. Why? Because he's being, Joshua is being accused on account of what? The Mosaic law. The body of Moses. And if it is true that Moses is trying to bring a charge against Joshua on account of the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant that Yahweh made, how fitting that Yahweh himself is saying, it's the same Yahweh who rebukes you. The same Yahweh who you want to stand in judgment over my servant Joshua is the same Yahweh who rebukes you, devil. Interestingly, if one wanted to take the route that Jude is actually quoting the assumption of Moses and not Zechariah 3, which I think is clear from the citation of the Lord rebuke you. I do think there's interesting parallels that could be communicating the same thing. Think about the similarities between Deuteronomy 34, Zechariah 3, and the assumption of Moses. Who buried Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34? Do you remember? Yahweh, the Lord. Who buries Moses in the assumption of Moses? Michael. Interesting. The devil is disputing with the Lord in Zechariah 3, the angel of the Lord. Who is the devil debating with in Jude? And in the assumption of Moses, Michael. Interesting. The devil's accusation in both Zechariah 3 and the assumption of Moses is what? The breaking of the Mosaic law. There is a dispute happening over the body of Moses. Again, I think it's clear that it's not the physical body of Moses, but the spiritual body of Moses, the body of his laws and the Mosaic covenant. I think, again, we have this that shows up in Revelation chapter 12. We read it last time, starting in verse 7. 
where the devil and Michael and disputing over the Mosaic Covenant shows up again. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil. And Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, listen, he who accuses them before our God day and night. That is Satan who accuses you, brothers and sisters. And what do you think Satan is accusing you before the Father on the basis of? The law. The law. You are lawbreakers. Every single person in this room is a lawbreaker. And guess what? The devil knows it. And guess what? The devil brings that charge against you before God. So what is Satan accusing God's people of? The law. The body of Moses. Or the covenant of works that we all find ourselves in. For we are breakers all of the covenant of works in Adam. So if we are judged by the law, no one will be saved, right? If we're judged by the law, no one will be saved. We all stand condemned. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.10, rather. But we who believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ are members of a better covenant, correct? Amen? The new covenant. We have a high priest who does not need to be clothed and covered by another like Joshua in Zechariah. We have a greater Joshua. Interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ, who instead covers us. The high priest of the Old Covenant was only able to enter into the very presence of God once a year. And that was an entering into an earthly pattern of that more true throne room. A shadow, if you will. And his sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. Why? Because they did not take away sin. But our high priest is better. The covenant that we are in is better. The promises connected therein are better. Why? Because Jesus is better. Listen to Hebrews 8, starting in verse 1. Now the main point is in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, not a pattern, not a replica, but this one the Lord has pitched, not man. He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So as, a, as our mediator, brothers and sisters, why would it be that Michael the archangel, if it is the Lord Jesus Christ, would say the Lord rebuke you? Well, on account of invoking the covenant name of God, but also it would be fitting for the Son to say that as our mediator. He is our mediator, just as in the wilderness and the temptation with the devil. How he wrestled with Satan to teach him as our mediator. He strove with him. He chose not to bring a railing judgment, but rather to say, Yahweh, rebuke you. 
What's more, our high priest has made us all a kingdom of priests ourselves. If Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest and Zechariah, and you say, well, that's only because he was a priest. Brothers and sisters, every believer is a priest. Offering up spiritual sacrifices to our great God and King. Again, in Revelation, the song that we will all sing, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is about our Lord Jesus Christ. You have made them, us, to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. What a promise. We are in a better covenant. We have a better mediator We have the Lord Jesus Christ, a better high priest. There is a greater judgment coming for these false teachers and everyone who does not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, Yahweh will will rebuke them. But our Lord keeps us. Our Lord encamps around the faithful, just as the psalmist says. Just as the Apostle John will say in his first epistle, that the one who is born of God keeps us. Yes, the angel of the Lord, the archangel Michael, our Lord Jesus Christ has always done that for his people. He has always kept us safe. He is the keeper of all that we have because it has been given to us by him. I ended last time with a quote from William Bridge. I want to end with it again. As Jesus is the Lord treasurer of all our graces, so he is the Lord keeper of all of our comforts. And therefore, when God is pleased to give any comfort to you, go to Jesus and say, Lord, keep my comforts for me. Keep my evidences for me. Keep my assurance for me. You must not only depend upon Christ for graces, but for comforts and as well for the keeping as for the getting of them. This is the God that we worship. This is our King who protects us. This is our covenant God, Yahweh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for guiding us by your word through this difficult passage in Jude. Lord, we recognize that we are but dust. But Lord, you have blessed us with every spiritual gift in the heavenly places in your Son, Jesus Christ. He who became a little lower than the angels for a time, but is now highly exalted above every creature, for he is indeed their creator, the wisdom of God incarnate, the God-man forevermore, who intercedes for us even now at your right hand, Father. Thank you for giving us a mediator who intercedes for us unwaveringly, effectually, and everlastingly. Oh Lord, how much better it is to be united to Jesus Christ, the God-man, than it would have ever been to be united to a glorified Adam who would just be simply a man. Your wisdom is unsearchable. Truly, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and your ways are not our ways. 
Let us remember that, Lord, as we read the scriptures, as we interpret them, and as we trust especially the providences of our lives. Oh, Lord Jesus, keeper of all of our comforts, keeper of all of our assurance, we depend upon you for the graces and the comforts that you give us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. We all say, amen.